when the shepherds humbly and curiously approached the Christ child, the chorus of lyrics that you all know, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord is as fitting a series of lyrics as have ever been penned. If you can imagine them attempting to come in after having had their night completely shattered by a multitude of angels announcing, making a birth announcement, and them coming up out of sleep and then finding their way to this child, you can imagine that this lyric applies so perfectly. And the way Luke describes these sacred scenes before the manger, the love that was emanating from Mary almost seems to be the inspiration, the very inspiration for the title of this classic Christmas carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful. In the video, you saw Mary speaking of the faithful coming. Would they come? Tell them to come, and so on and so forth. O come, all ye faithful. The arrival of Jesus was an advent of love. Now, for those of us who sit in church and have sat in church for years and decades, and we tend to accept terminology because it's perpetually used but never really seek out the meaning of that terminology. I just want to clarify something. When I say that the, the, the arrival of Jesus was an advent of love, advent by definition is very, very simple. It simply means the arrival of a notable person, a notable thing, or a notable event. So all it means when you say the word advent, all you're saying is arrival. So the arrival of Jesus being the advent of love is, in reality, the arrival of Jesus was the arrival of love. Love certainly was the catalyst behind the incarnation, according to John's gospel. Of course, we all know this verse, the third chapter of the gospel of John in the 16th verse. It says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him won't perish, but have everlasting life. Mary is the one through whom God uh, chose to give this extraordinary gift of love to the whole world that He uh, not only created, but He so loved it that He funneled His love. He channeled His love through this young woman. She would be able to love Him, her son. Love Him not only because she was His mom, <laughs> but also because, get, wrap your head around this, He first loved her before she ever realized what love from a divine source could mean to her. Again, John speaks of the richness of God's initiating love for all people. That certainly would include Mary. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And 
Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He goes on to say, anyone who does not love does not know God because, and he qualifies it. He says, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, in this is love, excuse me, not that we have loved God. Anybody ever feel like you're doing God a favor? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because He first loved us. Now let me put this in reverse a little bit and I'm going to give you another definition. Those of you who may or may not understand the concept of propitiation, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, know this, that Sin required a penalty. In the garden, the Lord laid it out simplistically. You can eat anything, just don't eat of that one, because when you eat of that one, you're going to die. And we got to the place in history where God determined that it was the fullness of time to send His Son for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus became the Propitiation, propitiation, again, simply means the act of appeasing. Jesus, with what he endured on the cross and before the cross and then was buried, subsequently rose from the dead, he appeased the penalty of sin before God on our behalf. And if that doesn't make you want to just flat get jiggy with it, I don't know what will. The capacity Mary had to love Jesus as his mom was created in her by Jesus himself before she ever knew what her heavenly sent assignment was going to be as the one who would eventually carry him in her womb. Regardless, after the angel Gabriel uh, conveyed her, her, shall we say, unique task, Mary had been anticipating that moment she would be able to meet her firstborn, conceived not by her husband, but by the Holy Spirit. She likely experienced an entire spectrum of emotions beginning at the time of an angelic encounter announcing her highly favored status with God And going through all those emotions up until the point, the adoration of the shepherds for her newly born child. Can you imagine that roller coaster, ladies? You have an angel show up and say, guess what, kiddo? And then after going through the experience of childbirth, 
in the most highly advanced medical facility available, then you have men from the fields, shepherds, storming your little stable to do nothing except worship and have their minds systematically blown by the baby you just birthed. But love won the day. Love won the day. Love won the day over all of those emotions. Love won the day over all those thoughts. All the gifts that had come in. Love won the day. She made it through. It is impossible to measure the love Mary must have had once Jesus made His arrival. Well, you girls, you know. Me, I imagine. Ladies, you know. However, we do know that the shepherds did in fact knock on her door to adore Him. And it seems reasonable that Mary's love, and you can put yourself in these shoes, continued to grow as she and Joseph allowed for this adoration that was coming from the shepherds as they drew near just to gaze upon this newborn king. You've just you've had all the stuff before. You've had the angels. You've had your meeting with your with Elizabeth. You've had all these things go on. You've experienced the pregnancy and so on and so forth. Now you've you've found yourself in a less than ideal set of circumstances. You've given birth to this child. You're actually head over heels bonkers in love with this little man and in barges a bunch of people. And they don't really care so much about you. And if I can use this word, which is probably not accurate or proper, but they become obsessed with worshiping the child you've just birthed. And you are sitting back, listening and watching everything that's going on. And what you know in your heart of hearts, spoken by angels, the love that you possess maternally, which is a gift from God, expands even more. Not only do you know the fact that He's the King, people you've never even heard of know He's the King. Luke tells us what Mary was doing in these moments near the manger after the shepherds arrived unannounced once Jesus' arrival had been announced in detail to them by angels. And Luke chapter 2 says the following, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, Mary did what all good moms would likely do. I know my boy's mom does this. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Moms 
when it comes to their children, tend to be deep thinkers. Mary was listening. Mary was lingering. And Mary was loving everything she was hearing from these shepherds who had come to adore the One she already was in love with. Deeper than she ever thought could even be possible. Mary was a new mom. And if she was like so many others who have described the elation of meeting their firstborn after the difficult journey through the pregnancy and then the painful uh, finish line of pushing and straining in labor. Love indeed wins the day. Love overflows onto the little one (laughs) who's now in her arms, but out of the womb and into the arms of this brand new mother. All the pain and all the struggle to get to this moment was very real. Yet now, all of that fades into overwhelming love that washes those moments completely out of the picture. Love had arrived and was swaddled in a manger. Did you catch that? Love had arrived. The embodiment of love. For God is love, according to 1 John, right? Love had arrived. And he was wrapped tightly in a manger full of hay. Mary was in love with her new love. You love love. She did. And likely had counted all of his fingers, all of his toes, on more than one occasion. Now she's taking it all in as brand new stories from the shepherds sound like something that she had already experienced some nine months prior. These stories would have sounded unbelievable is, is, is a kind word. Those words would have sounded, those stories would have sounded ridiculous if it hadn't been that she had experienced something very similar not terribly long ago. Remember in Luke 2, remember But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is a detail described of a mother experiencing nothing but love in her heart in the presence, in the present, and love in her heart for his future. While Mary was recovering, she welcomed the faithful ones who came to bear stories, to bring her gifts, to bring adoration and to praise and praise for God whose love was now incarnate. Considering all of that, everything we just talked about, considering all of that stuff from 21 centuries later, where we're sitting right now, It is as if Mary could have been nodding in agreement, if not in tempo, with the lyrics that would be written over a thousand years in the future from those first century moments. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come, ye, O come, ye to Bethlehem. 
Come and behold him, born the king of angels. One reason Mary could have been nodding in agreement as she pondered and treasured with a full heart of love in those moments is because she was a very faithful young woman herself. Very faithful. As a faithful Jewish female who had just given birth, she knew she could only welcome others uh, to come and adore her son, to worship her son for only so long. This time is going to expire. And she knows this. Because there's a very, very significant date that's on the horizon and is on her radar. Soon Mary would be the one who would be going forward with her baby son Jesus and her husband Joseph to express their adoration to God in a faith-filled manner with a long tradition staked in love. Not long after Jesus' form, uh, Jesus formally would be, would be welcomed into the historically rich Israeli family through the covenant of circumcision, which was only eight days after his birth, according to Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. They all would be headed to Jerusalem and the temple as faithful Jews observing their love for God. See, there was something else that was coming down the road too, not just his circumcision at eight days. Luke 2, 22 through 24 references what likely was part of the thoughts that Mary had treasured and pondered around the birth narrative of her son, Jesus. Now listen to Luke 2. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's important. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons. That, what was, that is what was facing them. You say, it doesn't sound like much. Oh, it's a lot. Mary likely talked with Joseph about what they would be doing not long after Jesus was born. No, they did not plan a sip and see. No, they did not plan a baby shower back in good old Bethlehem. Instead, they looked toward the month after the advent, the arrival of their firstborn son when they would demonstrate their love and their devotion to God who not only blessed them with uh, their firstborn child, but this is history now. This is where they're coming from. But also, who rescued their people long ago? The reason Mary would have 31 days after Jesus' birth circled on her calendar is based on what she knew to be true about the heritage as well as the tradition of all faithful Jewish parents. It would be the moment to devote her firstborn 
to the Lord based on what is written in the book of Numbers from the Hebrew Bible. Now listen to this. This is what motivated Mary and her husband to carry little Jesus along for this devotional ceremony. This is it right here. Numbers chapter 18. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours, speaking to the Lord. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix a Uh, at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. Now you're saying, okay, fine, that's fine. I'm not Jewish, and I don't know what that means. Right? Okay. Well, guess what? Very shortly, we're going to clear that all up. So just hold on and know that Numbers 18, 14 through 16 was the motivation that moved Mary and Joseph toward the temple. A month after Jesus' birth, a faithful demonstration of love by Mary and Joseph would take place called, this is a Hebrew title, Pidyon Heben. Pidyon Heben. Whenever you hear me reference Pidyon Heben, know that that means the redemption of the firstborn. Okay? That's all that means in Hebrew. The redemption of the firstborn. This is what Luke references in verses 22 through 24 and following through the end of verse 39 that took place in Jerusalem inside the temple. Every one of you have read that very verse, those verses where they went to the temple and they met there by what's known as a Kohen, a priest, and he did this ceremony. Every one of you knows it. You'll see it very shortly, I promise. But why was this demonstration of love and faithfulness so important not only for Luke to mention it but also that would have been in the mind of Mary and Joseph and I'm going to pause right here I want you to know that the lesson this morning from this point forward is going to become extremely scholastic this is not going to be usual Christmas preaching and it's certainly not going to be typical Pentecost So what I want you to do is I want you to listen with a critical ear. Not one to say, I didn't like that kind of critical. The kind of critical where you're in a mode where you are in the place to learn. Okay? From this point forward. Pidyon Heben, redemption of the firstborn, traces back to the time immediately following the Exodus when the Lord because of his great love for his people, used Moses to lead the ancestors of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus out of slavery and into freedom. You can just thank him for that. Because if it wasn't for him back then, using Moses, and delivering all of the ancestors of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, we wouldn't have a nativity so you can thank him right now 
While Luke briefly refers to this in verse 23, Exodus 13, Exodus chapter 13, describes more fully what happened that leads to God's redemptive love. This is Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and verses 11 through 15. So there's a lot of Scripture. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opened the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And I know some of you are going. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of the sons I redeem. Everything that was male and a firstborn was devoted, also known as the word dedicated, to the Lord. Those things dedicated to God always are open for His use, specifically and peculiarly, oftentimes destined for destruction. Hence, these animals were offered. And since you couldn't offer a donkey, you substitute a lamb. And if you're not going to substitute a lamb, maybe you didn't have the money to have one. That firstborn donkey was to be killed by breaking its neck. Because everything that is the firstborn and male was dedicated to the Lord. Everything. And you didn't have a say in the matter. Right? That's what that meant. Everything was his. Egypt didn't want to let go. He took out the firstborn of everything. Now, to commemorate that, the firstborn of everything that was male was given to God. The tradition, the traditional Jewish meaning and historical context behind Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn, is outlined by Messianic Jewish leader and expert in Jewish life cycle traditions. That's a big title. Barney Kassan. From in just a matter of a sentence or two, from this point forward, I'm going to be reading an awful lot of Kassan, okay? Barney Kassan. He writes of this unique observance and the context behind it in his book called God's Appointed Customs. I think that's going to be a book I have to buy. I'm going to be honest with you. Which gives more of a complete understanding of the significance of what took place and how it relates to our lives today. 
It's one thing to read stuff about how God wants you to dedicate the firstborn of your cattle in the Old Testament. It's another thing to try to wrap your head around, why does that even apply to me? Well, Kassan writes about this. In his writing, he uses some traditional Hebrew names in some places within his translation. Now, as I read this morning, I'm going to use those traditional names. You're going to pick up on them real fast. But I'm going to give you our version of their name as well. Okay? Let's begin. Since the days of Moses, the custom of Pidyon Haben has been an important event in the biblical Jewish life cycle. As mentioned in the Torah, Numbers chapter 18, verse 6, the timing of Pidyon Haben is one month after a boy's birth. One month. Since traditional Jews would want to, or would not want to waste any time at all, the ceremony usually takes place on the 31st day after birth. So moms and dads want to make this happen, okay? In biblical times, this would require the father to take his infant son into the tabernacle or temple. The father was obliged to find a godly priest from the sons of Aaron, which is known as a Kohen. If you're a priest and you're from the sons of Aaron, the Hebrews call them a Kohen. Or from the tribe of Levi, and Levi was a much larger priestly tribe. Either one, both work. As the father presented his son to the priest, the Kohen or Levite would ask him specifically. This was the question that you, mom or dad, or dad would have to answer. What is your preference? To give me your firstborn son or to redeem him for five shekels as you are commanded to do in the Torah? That's your choice. Brand new baby boy. What's your choice? You giving him to me or you redeeming him of five shekels? The father would then state his intention either to give up his son for priestly service or to redeem him. That was the situation. At this point, it was important for there to be an actual physical exchange of currency. That five shekels, remember? The exact amount is stated in the Torah, namely five shekels of silver. The child was obviously, I mean, this is kind of one of those duh moments, but the child was obviously worth more than five shekels of silver. And if not, that's a pretty cheap way to get a kid. He was obviously worth more, but really this contractual exchange of money had more to do with spiritual symbolism than it had to do with anything else. As the redemption money exchanged hands, certain Hebrew blessings were then chanted by the priest over the boy. Now, I'm not going to try to do these in Hebrew. I haven't eaten my matzah balls lately. They're right here in front of me, but I'm not going to try it. So I'm just going to let you know what it is in English. One of these chants that were, would be happening as this exchange goes on says, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and commanded us concerning the redemption of the firstborn. Amen. And again, as this would continue to go on, the, the, the Kohen 
would say, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us in life, sustained us, and brought us to this occasion. Amen. It's at this point a kiddish cup, which is basically just a wine goblet, would then be blessed. And as, uh, as is often the case at Jewish events, a great celebratory meal would follow. Now, that's one of the things that Jewish people and Pentecostals have going on together. Because you know the saying, Pastor Gary says it all the time, if it's, meet, if it's worth meeting over, it's worth eating over. So with that said, we can see some similarities. The entire Pidyon Heban ceremony is relatively simple. In reality, its format is, but its format is really quite powerful in its spiritual message. Traditional Jews still follow this custom. They still do this, despite the fact that there is no longer a temple in Jerusalem for the Jews, for the priesthood. There is no priesthood right now. That's going to change. However, it still has some wonderful truth for you and I. Since the New Testament takes place within the first century Jewish community, it records the Pidyon Haven ceremony of the Messiah. And this again is Luke chapter 2. Now here is where some Hebrew insertions are going to take place for people that you know their names. You know these people. But here we go. As stipulated in the Torah, Yosef, who's Joseph, and Miram, Mary, brought their newborn baby boy to the temple to fulfill their obligations. This obligation was twofold. First, to ceremonially cleanse the mother with the proper sacrifices, according to Leviticus 12. The family of Yeshua, Jesus, was not wealthy and therefore presented the less expensive offering of the two young or the young pigeons. The second part of the obligation was redeeming the firstborn so that through the pinion haven ritual this could occur. The child, Yeshua, was not exempt from this redemption. Although he was the Messiah, <laughs> it's not like that was broadcasted. Although he was the Messiah, he was not from the Levitical tribe. In actuality, the Scriptures predicted that the Messiah would come from another leading tribe, the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49. Yeshua's Pidyon Haven ceremony is described in Luke's Gospel. Luke 2, 25-33. There was in Jerusalem a man named Shimon, Simeon. This man was a Zedek, a righteous one. He was devout. He waited eagerly for God to comfort Israel. And the Ruach HaKodesh, I'm going to get that right, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, was upon him. It has been revealed to him by the Ruach HaKodesh that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah of Adonai, the Lord. Prompted by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. Now, did you hear that? He was spoken to by the Spirit that he would see, that he would see the Messiah of Adonai. And so what does the Bible say right here? It says, 
prompted by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Seems like a random act. And when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him what the Torah required, someone who five minutes earlier wasn't even there was there. Shimeon, Simeon, took him in his arms, made a blessing to God and said, Now, Adonai, according to your word, your servant is at peace as you let him go. Does everybody recognize this from the New Testament? For I have seen with my own eyes your Yeshua, which... which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light that will bring revelation to the Goyim, which is the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. How many Goyim do we have in the room this morning? Raise your hand. Do you realize that if it were not for this interaction, the revelation of Yeshua was not reality for you and I? Christmas is just a different animal than what we typically perceive. Yeshua's father and mother were marveling at the things Shimon was saying about him. As Yeshua's family worshipped in the temple, they undoubtedly realized that they needed a godly Kohen to officiate the ritual of their son. They found such a man in Simeon, who was not only devout, but was also a man expectantly, uh, looking expectantly for the consolation of Israel, that is, the coming of the Messiah. Not only was he a, was a, he a faithful, holy man, he was actually looking for this event to happen. Was that just a mere coincidence that Yosef and Miriam found this godly priest? Or could it be that they sought him out knowing that he was a Kohen with a messianic vision? I mean, think about that. Them coming in, him walking in, there it is. This is a great statement. In accordance with ancient tradition, the young couple placed their son in the arms of the priest who asked the relevant questions about their desire to redeem their boy. As the shekels were exchanged, the Kohen would bless God with traditional blessings. We've, been already, we've already talked about all of that. Yosef and Miriam were amazed at what they heard, the priest at, but the priest added a few prophetic words of his own given to him by Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. This son would be Yeshua. Yeshua. A wordplay on the name Yeshua. Salvation for many in Israel as well as a light to non-Jews. It seems that Yosef and Miriam certainly got their five shekels worth out of that priest as he turned to their as 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 he turned to the parents and said Shimeon blessed them and said this is Luke 2 to the child's mother Miriam Mary 
This child will cause many in Israel to rise or to fall and to rise. He will become a sign whom people will speak against. Moreover, a sword will pierce your own heart too. All this will happen in order to reveal many people's inmost thoughts. How thrilling it must have been to witness this Pidgeon Haven sermon. I mean, it's not just every day you see God in his own Hebrew ceremony. <laughs> this particular son was to be presented to all of Israel as the Messiah. Many would naturally rejoice at this fact and bless God for his faithfulness to his covenant. However, this son would certainly be controversial among many in Israel. I dare say that that was fulfilled. Miriam's heart would be emotionally pierced as she saw the division among her own people as they debated messianic claims of her son, Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. The earliest presentation of Jesus to the Jewish people took place at this Pigeon Haven ceremony. The final presentation of Jesus to the Jewish people took place in the exact same city, Jerusalem, but with very, very different circumstances. It would be the moment when Simeon's prophecy would come true as Jesus stood before Pilate who condemned Jesus to be crucified. Nails soon would pierce his hands and his feet and a sword his side. A piercing that was spoken prophetically over three decades ago, not far from Calvary's cross, finally would take place in the heart of his mother named Mary. Her heart would overflow once again with love. But this time, this time, it was accompanied by sorrow and by sadness as she watched her son lay down his life for everyone because of love. That would be a day of mourning. Many days, many months, many years ahead of, of Mary, though. But on the first day in Jerusalem, with Jesus and Joseph, it was a magnificent day of celebration. Baby boy getting dedicated. Love was present on this day too. It would be present every day of her life from that point forward with Him. The advent of love had come right on time. Just as the angel had said it would. Now her heart, her life, would never be the same again. Neither should ours. Neither should ours. What do you have to do for your life to never be the same again? All we have to do is allow the love 
that is represented in the celebration we celebrate every December 25th, let the love that is infused in what we call Christmas be fully born in us. And we receive this great gift of love from none other than the loving hand of God Himself. We should never be the same again. Nothing should be the same. May we present our lives to God in full devotion as we seek to live for His glory, as we both experience and we share His love. Amen. Stand with me this morning. I know for a fact that lesson was heavy and it was heady, but it was worthy.